0: turn with me in your Bibles please to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you've been with us over the last month, Pastor Scott and Pastor Matt have been working in their series but now I'm reverting back to the series I started a number of weeks ago called Standing on the Promises. And we looked at some of those promises that God gives us. One, The first week we talked about the promise that we have from guilt that there's forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the next week, I talked to you about temptation, how we are all tempted, and how God helps us overcome that. And we're going to continue in that series today. And I base this series on the fact that there are a lot of promises in the Word of God. You may recall I told you about a gentleman from Canada by the name of Everett Storms who set out to count every promise in the Bible. And it took him a little over two years, and Mr. Storms found that there were 7,487 distinct promises from God for you and for me in our lives. That's one in every four verses in the Word of God is a promise from God for us. And in times like these, I still believe we need to learn to stand more on the promises instead of just sitting on the premises and trusting God for the difficult things that we see happening all around us in this world. Now today we come to another wonderful promise. If you notice on the back of your worship guide, I've titled this message, It Will Be Worth It All, God's Answer to Hopelessness. And we're going to talk about that today. I almost called this message, I'm filled but I'm leaking. Because sometimes that is a better description of how we go through life. This last week, I was getting on the interstate at Polaris heading north, and my I don't know if your car does, but my car talks to me. You need gas. You need air. You know, something like that. And so, and then I have a woman that talks to me on my phone. I think she's schizophrenic, though. She is just a really rough woman. She tells me to go crazy places. But anyway, uh, the, it, it said... Tire low. You get that little light. You ever see that? It shows a little, little flat tire. I said, okay. And what you do, next time I fill up with gas, I'll add a little bit of air to the tire. I got, I'm going up the, ex, uh, the entrance ramp, uh, the entry ramp, and by the time I get on the ramp near the top, it says 12 pounds. I thought, what? How do we go from low to slow that quick? 12 pounds. I get in the lane, keeping up with the traffic. It says 10 pounds. Pull off the road, ding-a-ling. You know, it's time to stop. And that tire went flat as a flitter, just like that. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And I'm not going to tell you how I got off the interstate at 5 o'clock rush hour, but I didn't get a ticket. And I made it to the service station, you know, when when that finally happened. Well, conversely, just as a tire needs to be filled with air, a Christian needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? And I'm not going to get into the fact of your ecclesiastical background of what you think and when you think the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens. But rest assured, my friend, the Bible tells us that we are to continually be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is echo. But be filled with the Spirit of God, and it's a continual process, and why is that? Here's why. I am filled with the Holy Spirit, but in my life, I find that from time to time, I leak. I find on a more regular basis, and I wish it happened, that I'm in a mess, or that I am the mess, or things that happen. And regardless of how long I live for the Lord, for almost six decades, I've named the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet there are times that the mess up comes so real in my life, and I leak. And I think you probably leak too. In fact, why don't we just have a time of confession? Why don't you turn to your neighbor, just look at them and say these two words, I leak. I leak. Go ahead. Would you just try that for a moment? Just I leak. It's something that happens in each of our lives. Oh, you're enjoying that. <laughs> well, let's talk about it this morning. And I want to begin with the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. And we're going to break this incredible promise down just word by word this morning. Follow with me if you would. The Bible says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Now, on the screen, I've underlined the phrase, sanctify you through and through. And some other translations say it a little differently. One translation says, may he sanctify you completely. Another one says, make you completely holy. Another one says, making you pure, belonging only to him. And that's a prayer for something that in your life, it has not happened yet. You are not perfectly holy. I am not perfectly holy. We have flaws. We do leak. There are times that we want to be drawn closer to God, but yet the reality that we live in doesn't always reflect that. And honesty compels us to admit that regardless how long you've been saved, we still have a long way to go. If that's your testimony, would you say amen this morning? And that leads me to offer a common sense definition of sanctification. This is not a uh, a theological definition where you may hear in a seminary somewhere, depending upon your heritage. If you're a Wesleyan Armenian background, to say sanctification is a second definite work of grace, whereby the sin nature is eradicated from the human being. Or the Calvinistic approach that the Holy Spirit indwells in you and sovereignly God rules where you are able to suppress that nature. But I want to give you a, in the vernacular of a lay person a definition of sanctification and holiness. And it goes something like this. It is simply everything that God does in your life and mine to make sure we turn out right. It is not everything that you do but it is everything that God does in your life and in my life to make sure that we turn out right. And sanctification, that word, <laughs> sanctification guarantees us that salvation was not a waste on us. Will you think about that? Sanctification is the guarantee that salvation was not a waste in our life and it and assures us that God finishes what he starts We're not finished yet. That's why we pray and seek the Lord. Someday we'll be finished. But until then, we'll live with things like Psalm 51 where David cried out and he said, Lord, cleanse the iniquity within me. I have sinned against you and you only. That was the great psalmist of Israel. That was the harpist. That was the, the young man that killed Goliath. And that was the same person who, knowing God's intimate relationship, went out and committed adultery with another man's wife. And yet he said, Lord, would you restore the joy of my salvation? Now, I believe that even though we leak, there are those who come to church, there are those who identify with the religion of Christianity, who have no more religion than a a plug of corn or something. And the Bible says that they come out from us, they leave us because they're really not of us. And sometimes the pressure can be on us where we will mess up, we will fall, but trust me, if you're a blood-washed child of God, God will never leave you, God will never forsake you, and he has on his mind your spiritual growth perhaps more than you do. In fact, here's the difference. And Salvation is totally grace. It's free. It's of God. Every church agrees with that. There's not a good Bible-preaching church in America that would disagree. The only way you come to Jesus is by grace. Grace, grace, God's grace that saved a sinner like me. The old acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. We all get that. But the problem is with churches and fellowships and religious groups is that we all decide to get our own definition that after you are saved, and anyone can be saved, can an adulterer be saved? Can a drunkard be saved? Can a homosexual be saved? Can you be saved? The Bible says whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. But where we mess up in church groups and denominations and fellowships is that we tend to try to put a separate criteria on a Christian's life after they're saved than when they come to get saved. We know that it's all grace, but then we want to add something. We want to say, well, you are saved, but for you to continue in fellowship and growth, you must do this. You must eradicate that. That must go away. And I think we all agree there's a lot we want to go away. But here's when you know God's doing a work in your life. When God begins to supernaturally remove those things in your heart that you really don't want there to begin with. When it's really not your effort. When it's a God thing. I can't tell you how many times over the years, and these are some of my favorite moments. is when someone will come and accept Christ. And then later they'll tell me, I I was not even thinking about God. I came to church because of the drugs. My parents drugged me there. My wife drugged me there. I didn't intend to come and do business with the Lord. But the Holy Spirit got a hold of my heart, and I was saved in a moment of time. And I want to tell you, as we, after we're saved, when the Lord begins to take things out of our life, he does it. And you say, God, I don't even miss that thing I didn't think I could ever give up. God, I never believed I'd be looking so good spiritually today. God, that flaw seems to be getting a little better. Well, it's always a process. In these two verses, there are five P's that we're going to talk about today very quickly, and that is the person, that is the purpose. That is the prospect, the position, and the promise that God gives us. So let's break them down. The first P that I want you to fill in is the promise on the back of your worship guide, and then each part of this is part of the verse. Notice what it says with the promise: "May God Himself that is going to do this." I'm sorry, that's the wrong verse that goes with that. The guy that put it together messed it up. He messed up. I know him personally. <laughs> Look at verse 23. It should say, may God himself, the God of peace. And that opening phrase, guys, how many of you know that you know that you're saved? Say amen. Amen. I want you to know you can also know that the sanctification process has begun. In verse 23, it says, may God himself, the God of peace. That's the guarantee of our sanctification. Paul uses an emphatic Greek construction of words here to guarantee that. He says, may God. God himself, God himself who is the God of peace. And here's the truth, only God, excuse me, only God can make you better. Think about that just for a moment. Exercise, they tell me, is good for the body. I wouldn't know. Therapy is good for your soul. Friends may lift your spirits. Good fortune and money may improve your living conditions. But only God can make you better from the inside out. After salvation even, that's a process of growth. God is the author and he is the source of all spiritual growth in our lives. And it's easy to forget that truth. In our, in our battle against sin, sometimes we crawl into a corner and we try to get better. And after, after a while, we stand up and say, look how nice I look, Lord. I did it all by myself. I gave, I gave up smoking, I gave up chewing, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't date girls that do. Lord, I'm really doing better in this thing. But it's all through an effort of our own, and I'm not sure that God's that impressed with it. And we are wrong when we boast that we've accomplished something of ourselves. Say amen again. Amen. Listen to what Jesus said in John 15:5. He said, without me, you can do nothing. Think about that. Without me, you can do nothing. And in contrast to all our feeble efforts at moral betterment and self-improvement, Paul simply says, God himself, the God of peace, is the one that's going to do the work. And you may as well write that down big and plain in your mind. If you're going to grow closer to God, if you're going to grow spiritually this morning, it will be because of the God of peace that will do that work in your life. Now, the second thing that I want you to write down, P, is the, pr- is, is the purpose What is the purpose of God himself working in our lives? Now, this is good. This may be the best part, this side of eternity. And the answer to that is that he may sanctify you. In the NIV, it says through and through, inside and out, all the way around. And the phrase through and through, I understand, is an unusual two-part Greek word that combines the word whole plus in the end. And it literally means he's going to make you whole, complete, in the end and today's not the end you're still here you're still growing some of you're living longer than you wanted to live because God's still working and and he's he's going to take care of everything but it's not all today and God has ordained that his children all of them without exception will be made complete there will be no three-quarter complete Christians in heaven did you hear that as rough as you think you're having a time of it, as difficult as you're having growing in the walk with the Lord, that you will be complete in Jesus Christ. The truth of us, the truth is, most of us feel like we're fragmented in a thousand directions. It's so easy to think that God's never going to get us completed. In our spiritual lives, we feel like the Lord's working. You ever seen that sign that says, under construction? That could be in front of each one of us spiritually all the time. In his commentary, John Calvin about this verse said that God's intent is the entire renovation of man. Renovation. Do you ever watch any of those shows on HGTV? My wife has got me addicted to home improvement shows. And and she watches all those people that go through all of that. And and, and it used to be, she's not in this service, I don't think, I can tell you freely. I know you would never tell her. But years ago, there used to be a show on that I think the government made them take it off because men were dying. It was the surgery channel. And my wife would watch them operate on people in our bedroom. I said, Deborah, either turn it off or I can't come to to bed. I can't go to sleep looking at gallbladders being taken out of human bodies. This is terrible. So finally, the government got rid of that garbage. And now we get to watch, uh, uh, is it Chip and Joanna? I knew you were watching it. (laughs) We get to watch all these home improvement shows all the time now. Flip or Flop or the Property Brothers. But most of all, I understand that Deborah's favorite is Chip and Joanna Gaines, the Fixer Upper things. And and those shows follow the same plan. Do you know how it works? They started out by showing you a distressed property. Do you remember that first place you lived? It was probably yours. (laughs) It's just a distressed property. The windows are sagging, the roof is leaking, the sidewalk is cracked, the driveway has gravel, the shingles are falling all around, it doesn't look like it has any hope at all, and then you start renovating, it all goes well. The purpose of the show is that you sell it for a profit at the end, but the truth is it never goes well. I've never seen one of those shows where it went zippity-doo-dah, zippity day. And God do it very easily. They start with a bang, and and then the team comes in, and they begin ripping out the old walls and rehanging electrical wires. I'm trying to watch it and learn. They dig into the foundation. They're knocking out the windows so they can replace the windows with fancy French doors. But then trouble hits. You know how this goes, right? It's standard. Chip calls Joanne and says, Joe, you're not going to believe this? The foundation is cracked. What? That's not in our budget. Do you ever hear them say that? Or or the roof has to be replaced. Or or we've got mold in the bathroom. And it looks like this renovation project has turned into a total disaster. And and have you noticed that the producer always puts the problem just before the commercial? (laughs) Things are going well, and then the phone call, oh, it's really bad. Then you have to watch the commercial. They know you're going to come back to see how they're going to fix this disaster. And then once the crisis is past, they finish it. Now, here's three things that you can learn spiritually from watching those shows, if you can stay with me that long. (laughs) Number one, nothing is easy as it looks. Say amen. amen. Number two, renovation takes a lot longer than you estimated. And you know, number three, it will always cost you more than you thought it would cost when you're doing that thing. Boy, there's a lot of amens in the house this morning. Well, if you think houses are hard... Try renovating a human life. Think what God has to deal with. We're all the material that he has to work with. There's always something that needs to be fixed. Or if we fix it, it breaks again. It leaks again. Or we fix one thing and something else breaks. We stop one bad habit only to pick up another bad habit. A great many of us are leaky Christians, and we have cracks from different places spiritually that need to be filled And that's a job so tough that only God can attempt it and only God can complete it. Some of us take 25 years, some 30 years, some 40 years. Like myself, some 50-plus years, and the job still isn't done. And God eventually says to each one of us, listen, I've done all I can do remotely with the portable power tool chest. Why don't you come on up here and let me finish this thing? And he calls us home. Today, we're holy in spots it's not that complete work that's God's intent for us when God's finished with us we'll be holy through and through that's the purpose of God himself working in our hearts you say Frank what's the potential of it working out with well, that's my third point I want you to see the prospect of what God's doing Paul said the prospect is he's going to fix your whole body your whole soul Your whole spirit and that phrase tells us the extent of sanctification that's why Paul would write for this is the will of God even your sanctification and it tells us what God wants to do God intends to renovate the whole person nothing is going to be left out nothing is going to be overlooked every part will be made perfect in the end it's not necessarily perfect now I heard Dr. E.V. Hill, the great black preacher from Los Angeles, Mount Zion Baptist Church, say one time. He said, do you know, I cussed till about 10 years ago. He said, I haven't said a bad word in six months. He said, God is really working on me, changing me. He said, and all y'all are saying that how terrible that is. He said, but in my culture, I grew up, cussing was normal. People in my church knew, don't mess with me on a Sunday if you see me not smiling. I'll cuss you out i thought dr evie hill that great man of god and he said one day god spoke to him and said evie that doesn't look anything like jesus and he said i could not stop it for all those years and the lord took it from me just like that always ask god to take things from you what's that struggle that you have it's not wrong to pray god would you change my desires Instead of focusing on that one thing, God, would you change me? Would you take that desire away? Would you help me to have the holiness mindset that you want me to have? I don't know, suppose that you could change anything about yourself this morning. Where would you start? Lots of us would start on the outside. A few of you would like to be skinnier. Me, I'm a full gospel preacher. Some of you would like to be taller. A few of you maybe would like to be shorter. Some of you would like to be better looking perhaps. What would you change? Would we even recognize you? Would you change your hair? Would you change your eyes? Would you change your teeth? Would you change your legs? Would you change your bulges? If you could wave a magic wand and change your outward appearance, would it be a light touch-up or an extreme makeover? Would we even be able to recognize you? And, and the older you get, the more things we have to replace physically. Have you noticed that? The implants, the crowns, going from glasses to bifocals to trifocals and hearing aids and pacemakers. And we walk with the cane and we have hip replacements, glory to God, and hips and knees and ankles and shoulders. And it sometimes looks like we're put together with spit and glue. The older we get. And the breakdown of the body reminds us that God has something better in store for us. Is there a witness in the house? Eventually, we come to the heart of the things that need fixing, and people change slowly if they change at all. Someone said this, and I can't remember the guy that said it. He said, But people change, but not much. We struggle. That's why the work on the inside is so very important. I mean, think about the struggles of your own life. Forget the outward things for a moment. What would you change about yourself on the inside if you could? Would it be an impatient spirit? Would it be a critical tongue? Would it be an envy of those that are around you? Would it be a, a, a spirit of discontentment? Would it be a lingering resentment? Would it be lust you can't conquer? Would it be guilt and the conscience you have to live with? Would it be a judgmental spirit? Would it be a quick temper? Would it be profound discouragement? Would it be an ungrateful spirit? Well, here's the good news of the gospel. We are going to be changed. And God changes us from one level of godliness and holiness to another as we go along. That's why 1 John 1 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. That's in the progressive. That is in the ongoing. It is in the linear. It is the right side, step by step by step with God. And he conforms us more to his image and changes himself. And the stuff about ourselves that drive us crazy will be gone one day forever and ever. A man came to his pastor one day, and he said, Pastor, I'm so sick of myself. I'm sick of myself that I've not yet become that person that I know God wants me to be. And we've all felt that way from time to time. I think it was D.L. Moody one time that said, Lord, make me humble, and please don't let me know it. Change me, God, on the inside. And spiritual progress often is so slow in coming, but God has promised that we will get better. So there is the person, there is the purpose, there is the prospect. Now I want you to see the position that we're in in Christ. It's so important. In the last part of verse 23, it says blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I've just gone through a whole litany of things that are wrong with us and yet the Bible promises us if we've trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior that we are going to be blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says that you're going to be so blameless that no one is going to be able to bring a charge against you. And that's not true of most of us now. I know that even in my life and you know in your life that someone could say, well Frank, if you're pointing them out for what they did, what about that thing in your life? The truth is, we all stumble in many different ways. And God intends that we stand before Him one day and He's going to say, Does anyone in the universe know any reason why this person could not enter the kingdom of heaven? And I promise you, if you're a blood washed child of God, not one chirp, not one people be made. There'll be a loud silence, not the angels. Not the demons, the devil will not be an accuser of the brethren at that point. Not the saints or the sinners. No one in the universe will be able to bring any charge against God's elect. The good news Bible says that God will sanctify us so that we are free from every fault. Phillips uses the phrase spotless integrity. That's God's desire for all of his children. And none of us achieves that in this life. None of us. But better things are coming. And yet in this life, we're to become more like Christ as we grow in him, that we're a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know two things. When Christ comes, our character will be revealed. You say, Frank, how do we know if someone's really a Christian? We don't. I don't know if you're a Christian, and you don't know if I'm a Christian. The Bible says that our witness bears witness with his spirit that we know we're the children of God. But if there's one acid test, acid uh, litmus test of someone being a Christian that I can think of, it would be the fruit of the spirit. There has to be some evidence of the work of Christ in you. If there's never been a change in your life since you accepted Christ and you walked down the aisle, you were just exercising. You did not have a transformation in your life. The two things that are so very important that will be revealed when Jesus comes is that our character will be revealed. You may not know who I am or what I am, and I may not know truly what you are deep on the inside, but when Jesus comes, it will all be revealed at the either the white throne judgment of God, which you do not want to be a part of, because the end result is to be cast into the lake of fire, or the judgment seat of Christ, where every work of every believer will be tried with a loving God and Jesus Christ on, on our side. So our character will be revealed, and our perfection will be complete. But we're so far from this right now. You see, Frank, what's my hope? Is that we, were, we are in Christ Jesus. I want to give you an illustration that I saw one time from a long, long time ago. This is your life. And I've done my best to put fingerprints all over this glass. You can't see them, but if my wife were here, she could see every one of them and tell me that that glass couldn't go on the dining room table. But that's my life. And it's here, and it's kind of clear, and everyone could see that that is my life, unless I say, I know that I'm a sinner saved by grace, but I'm covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And because I'm in Christ, when God looks at me and looks at me through the lens of Jesus Christ, he says, son, you know what Frank did, what he thought, what he said? He said, I do, Father, but you know Frank is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there is no way. Amen. You can praise God for that. And as a believer, you're covered by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Satan comes along and tries to get and says, but wait, I know there's a spot right under here. Jesus so he's gonna, get your hands off of the blood. He is covered. We are in Christ. And those things. And along the way of our sanctification, I want to tell you, I know you know this is true. You haven't thought about it this way. It's because you're not as educated as I am. But along the way of this trip of holiness till we get to heaven, every once in a while, the Lord will reach his hand in there and take a chunk of dirt out and just pitch it by the wayside. And you'll feel like you're growing a little closer. You're getting a little stronger. And you are because he's giving you the strength as you need it. But for all of our fallacies, for all of our foul-ups and all of our hang-ups, you need to know, you need to go to sleep tonight knowing that you're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. Frank, I committed adultery. Listen to me. You're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. I lied, I stole, I cheated. It's terrible. Stop it. But if you're a child of God, you need to know that spiritually, you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, he's constantly working on those prints and those flaws and those things, and he will put a want-to in your heart. You may sin, but as a Christian, you'll never be able to have the joy of sin that you had before you came to Jesus Christ. He'll change your want-tos. He'll change your desires. The position will be on that day in that grand and glorious day, he will present us without spot and blemish to the Lord, to the God the Father, through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's our hope in everything that we're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's easy to find reasons to feel guilty. Do you ever do this? I do this. This week, I do, did th- do this. I do this this week. <laughs> Have you ever said to yourself, what were you thinking when you said that? Raise your hand. I just need to know, am I the only one? Have you ever said to yourself, why are you so stupid? No one else with an IQ over three would do anything like you just did. Or or you know better than that. Or more personally, Frank, why did you tell that lie? Frank, how could you treat a friend that way? You said that was your friend. And on and on it goes. And spiritual growth can be discouraging at times. It's not always easy to say, I'm growing in the Lord. The Lord does chastise us. Yes, you maybe did do some of the sins I've talked about. But don't think that God just winks at them. It's not greasy grace. Do anything you want to do. There is the chastisement of the Lord. There is the conviction of the Lord. There is repentance that's called of us if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and someone said, you know, it's like climbing Mount Everest. The higher you go, it seems like the farther away the top seems. But God has a reason for this. And the reason is he wants us to learn to depend upon him for everything. And he's designed us so that it only works. Here's the only way it works for you and God is if you die daily and surrender everything to Jesus Christ. Every day, you know, like Romans 12 says, I present my body a living sacrifice to the Lord. Holy and acceptable unto him And when we try to run the show, which we often do, things tend to fall apart. And if the Christian life is left to us, we will fail every single time. One of my mentors was Dr. Adrian Rogers, who I loved so much, and he saved my ministry at one. God used him to help save my ministry one time. But I loved what Adrian Rogers said. He said, "I would not trust the best two minutes of my life to get me into heaven." It's only by the grace and the power of Jesus Christ that we can have, have that. And today we don't feel blameless blameless if we really think about it spiritually because we aren't blameless. Maybe we're blameworthy and we make things worse about what we do and say, but today we're all unfinished people and God is finally going to be finished with us. We'll stand blameless in his presence. That's the good news of this passage, that he would sanctify you through and through. And then here's the big question. You see, (laughs) have you noticed that, that a lot of people believe that God will save them? We've talked about it. You believe God will save every kind of person. But not a lot of Christians believe that God will keep them. And even though you are in a church that believes in the security of the believer in Jesus Christ... Satan and your human mind will try to convince you of your unworthiness that you do not belong to God that you're not worthy of going to heaven and the last thing that I want to close with today is the promise that God gives us and notice what Paul said in verse 24 and this is the verse that I had messed up that you should see now and he said the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it That little phrase is so important. Our hope in this life and the life to come rests not on my ability to live a holy life, but upon God's faithfulness. Your ability to know you're going to heaven is not upon how good you are, but upon God's faithfulness. His faithfulness bears the weight of our very puny efforts. Paul said, the one who calls you is faithful. Do you know what we are today? We're the unfinished children of God. You say, well, Frankie, you're saying again that I can do what I want. Please don't walk out of here saying that. I believe that we should do everything in our power to surrender to the drawing of the Holy Spirit to allow God to do a work in us. And when we don't do it, God has consequences for that. doesn't mean you're not going to heaven, but it means that you may get there sooner than you wanted to go. It may mean that you're, you're, you, you can be afflicted both emotionally and spiritually, and I hate to say it even physically. In First Corinthians chapter 11, Paul said, For this cause, some of you are afflicted and even have fallen asleep because of your disobedience to the Lord. You're a work in progress, and so am I. And, and we know one thing about construction. If you live anywhere in central Ohio, there are orange barrels everywhere. And you have orange barrels in your spiritual life, and so do I. And we know about construction. It's long and loud and noisy and messy. And that's why most of us, even at bed at night, you know, when you go through, why did I say that? Why did I do that? That's the saws and the hammers of God's Holy Spirit constructing you, reminding you. You can do better. I can help you with that as you move forward. Think about the word predestined when it says we're predestined to be conformed to the image of God. Take it apart. Pre means before. Pre. Destined means where you end up at the end. Before we get to the end, our spiritual journey, even before it started, God made up his mind about our destination. One day, we're going to look like Jesus. I know you don't look like it now, and I know that I don't look like it now. But you're the only Jesus the world will see. We're Jesus with skin on, and we want to be a reflection of that. I read a story about a sculptor piece of work that began in 1464 in Florence, Italy. There was a sculptor by the name of Agostino de Duccio, and he was given this huge square marble working on this massive piece of marble that was flawed from the very beginning. And he intended to produce a magnificent sculpture of an Old Testament prophet for a cathedral in Florence, Italy. And after two years, he gave up on the project. And then history tells us that in uh, 20 years later, almost 1476, another sculptor by the name of Antonio Rossellino took on the project of the same piece of marble. And in time, abandoned, and said nothing could be done with it. There are too many flaws. There are too many cracks. It's too massive. And then in the year 1501, a young 26-year-old gentleman by the name of Michelangelo was offered a considerable sum of money to produce something worthwhile from that enormous block of marble. And as he began to work on it, he saw a flaw that was so significant. At the base of that marble, there there was a, 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 a tear out from the marble, and he saw the flaw at the bottom of that, and he decided to turn that part of the stone that was broken off into a broken stump, a broken tree stump, that would support the right leg of the individual that he was going to sculpture there. And he worked on the marble for four years until he produced what we know today as the incomparable David. What historians and artists, uh, critics say is the greatest masterpiece that has ever been produced. And today that 17 foot tall statue stands on display in a gallery in Florence where people come from around the world to view it. And more than a masterpiece, it's one of the greatest works that's ever been produced. And many experts say there's no statue more perfect. How did he do it? And and answering in the terms of a layman today, they said, Michelangelo, how did you take this flawed marble and make it into David? And his answer was, I cut away everything that didn't look like David and God's cutting away everything in our lives that doesn't look like Jesus that doesn't look like him it's a step at a time it is a day at a time and it is a process if you've ever entered a construction zone you know it's noisy you know it's messy it slows things up while the hammering and sawing continues it's hard to imagine sometimes when you see buildings going up or downtown interstate 71 it looks like a bunch of veins going in the wrong direction but eventually it will all make sense. And I want you to know God never stops working on us because there's so much to be done. And in your mind's eye, when you look at yourself as as David's statue or Frankie's statue or put your name in there as your statue, it's hard to see what it's going to be because you know what's on the inside of this chunk. It's badly marred. it's, It's misshapen. It's discolored, and it's cracked in odd places. It's about the worst piece of material that a sculptor could find to work on. is our lives. The Apostle Paul said that. He said, I am the chief of all sinners. I'm the worst piece of material God has to work with. But God is undeterred. Amen. And he works patiently at his job. He chips away the bad parts. He chisels into the image of the hard stone, stopping occasionally to polish different parts there. And one day he finishes one part of the statue of our life. We may get one thing done. And, and maybe just this is just a, an example, but maybe the Lord puts his tools down on you for the night and the next day he comes back to shape another part and he looks and the part that he just fixed was messed up. And the Lord says, who did that? Very sheepishly, I did it, Lord. I messed it up. I'm the one that's flawed. I'm the one that keeps messing up. And you raise your hand, but God's faithful. He patiently picks up his chisel and he starts working. How many of you have been forgiven by God for a sin more than once since you've been saved? The same sin more than once. You know what? His chisel's at work. He's working on us. He's shaping us. He's molding us. He's conforming us to his image. And he wants to chip away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. And and in my case, and probably in yours, he still has a long way to go. Uh, The little kid song, do you remember this? I think every turnquist wrote this many years ago. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. He made the sun and the stars. It took him just seven days to make the earth, the moon, and Mars. But how special we must be. Because God's still working on me. He's continually shaping us and working on us. And think of the four words at the end of verse 24, and I'll close. It says, he will do it. They're simple, they're direct, there's no qualification, there's no hesitation, there's no doubt of any kind. Not he may do it, not he might do it, not he could do it, or he'll do it if he feels like it. Not even he'll do it if we do our part. Did you hear that? Not even, he will do it if we do our part. Even if we fall, he will not fail. He will always do what he does because he's God. When it's said and done, what matters is not my hold on God, but it's God's hold on me. At the bottom of your outline on the back, you'll see a bunch of crazy letters. P-B-P-G-I-N-F-W-M-Y. And if you look on the screen, you'll see what that means. Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. Some of you have told me you've done this. Mike, Noel, you told me you were just there recently at the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte, North Carolina, and some of you have gone there, and if you go there, you can see the spot where Billy Graham and Ruth Graham are buried. Billy died in 2018, but his precious wife Ruth died in 2007, 11 years before Billy Graham died. She was a dynamic Christian. Some of you ladies may have used her books in Bible studies. She wrote several books and books of poetry and poems from her log home in the mountains of North Carolina, She personally planned and supervised the building of that special home. The architectural part of it, the the logs that were split from local trees. And she named her home Little Piney Cove. And everyone who knew her agreed she was a remarkable woman. Billy Graham frequently said, I heard him say this on more than one occasion, that his wife was a better Christian than he was. He wrote a wonderful biographical book before he died called Nearing Home. Some of you have seen that. And in the book, he tells the story about what Ruth chose to have on her tombstone. Both of the Grams were buried in caskets that were made by prisoners in Alabama, $200 each. Very simple wood caskets. But Ruth, who was born a missionary, Ruth Graham Bell, Bell Graham, was raised by Chinese missionaries. And she had something she wanted engraved on her tombstone. And the epitaph is from a road sign she saw near their home once. And the sign said, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. And if you will go on Google and type in Ruth Graham's tombstone, and just sketched out at the bottom of that little simple tombstone, it says, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. Guys, you hear the hammering and the sawing on the inside of you today? Don't be disgruntled by that, dissatisfied with that. God's still working on you. God's still working on us. And when he's finished, you're going to look just like Jesus. You can take it to the bank. It has to start in salvation of your understanding of your need of a Savior. It has to be completed by you resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be so one day you'll stand and know that even though there are all these flaws it is well with my soul church will you stand with me a moment we're going to sing this great song of the faith if you have a spiritual need and you know there's an area of your life God's working on surrender it to him we lift we offer our bodies a living sacrifice you know living your Christian life is a lot like ironing a shirt You straighten it up one wrinkle at a time. Where's the wrinkle today? Will you give it to him as we sing? The altar's open if you want to pray. If you've never trusted, Jesus is your Savior. I can't think of a better day than for you to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ.